one and all, my name's Adrian, if you don't know who I am. Uh, as I explained, we're in this series we've entitled Home Origins. As we believe, as followers of Jesus, what we're seeking to be uh, together and what we're seeking to build together is a home. Uh, and a home where everyone's welcome. But in it, we've then said, well, what does it look like? What's the kind of home? What are the attributes of the kind of home we're to seek to build? And to help us to look at that, what we've said is, well, let's look then at the very beginning of the Bible uh, in Genesis 1 to 3 and discover through those amazing chapters in this lens of home, what are some of the attributes that God designed for our home to look like? And as we're looking at those, it's then looking and saying, actually, this is then what Jesus has come to restore in order that together we could be then become an outpost of the kind of home that God wants to reveal in this world, which one day he will return and restore everything to be the home that he always ordained it to be for humanity where he would dwell. Uh, so with that in mind, I actually want to start slightly differently. We are going to get into Genesis, but I want to start by telling you a story, a story uh, that involves me and an art exhibition I went to at the end of last year. I had the a privilege of going to Lambeth Palace uh, in November last year to see a friend of mine's uh, art exhibition that was being put on there. And uh, it's, she's an incredibly unique, and I'm not going to say incredibly unique, you can't be that, it's just unique. She is your unique individual uh, and someone who is art, is seeking to tell a story of women who've been uh, neglected or abused in different ways throughout the world. Uh, and I have the privilege of knowing her and encouraging her. That's literally what I do. I pick up the phone every so often and encourage her in the art that she's doing, and I'm there to try and help her to continue to tell the stories that she's telling. And she invited me along uh, to Lambeth Palace. So I went on a, I can't even remember what evening it was, probably a Wednesday evening to Lambeth Palace, uh, which in itself, if you've ever been around Lambeth Palace, it's quite a foreboding building that as you approach it, it's like this little castle. And you have to go through security to get through. And I kind of made my way through and was already thinking, man, this is slightly different to the kind of places I hang out in. Uh, and then make my way into the room where the exhibition's in full flow as I arrive slightly late, having come from Birmingham. And as, we, as I arrive in there, I realize that this totally different environment to the one that I'm normally used to. Uh, and as I start to go around and chat to people, I realize that I'm in a room of... Uh, cabinet members, MPs, UN representatives, people who represent large charities, and me. Oh, and also some people from the Foreign Office. And as I'm around there, and as people are talking, and I hear their stories, I hear what they're involved in, suddenly I start to think, what on earth are you doing here, Adrian Hurst? And as I'm stood there in this art exhibition, I start to physically feel myself start to edge towards the walls away from where everyone else is. And as I hear more and more of their stories, I start to think more and more, what are you doing here? But then start to think about some other things. Start to think about how, if only they knew who I was, they'd realize that I don't really belong here. I started to remember my lack of academic achievement I started to remember the kind of cultural background that I'd grow up, grown up in and the way that I can talk can often display that. And I started to realize that more and more that I not only didn't belong here, but I was quite a flawed individual in this room. I didn't just feel intimidated. 
I knew that I didn't belong. I knew actually more than that, if I'm honest, that I didn't fit. And if I was really honest, I thought I wasn't worthy of being there. And in that moment, as I hid towards the wall, looking at this surrounding group of people who seemed at very ease with one another, the only overriding emotion that I can say that I felt was shame. Let's pause there for a moment. I want to come back to that story in a few minutes' time. But before we get there, I just wonder how many of us have found ourselves, not maybe in that situation, but maybe in a different situation. Where suddenly, actually, in the core of who we are, is we just suddenly think, like me, I don't know if I belong here. I feel flawed compared to everyone else. If people really knew who I was, they'd know how unworthy I am. And before long, we discover that actually, I reckon it's true that every single one of us in this room has known or knows shame. See, shame is something that we can feel either through something we've done or through something that's been done to us. And let's just quickly define what I mean by shame. Uh, Brené Brown, Dr. Brené Brown, if you've not come across her, she's a remarkable woman, has written extensively on the subject of shame, did a PhD on the subject of shame. Phenomenal. And she defines shame like this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. She then goes on and says, well, if that's what shame is, which I promise you every single one of us in this room has felt or is feeling. Let's be honest, for some of us at this moment, as we've heard the word shame being mentioned, we're thinking, oh no, why did I come this morning? Everyone's looking at me. How can I get out of the room? Like, if that's you, I am so pleased you're here. Please don't leave. But then she goes on to say, well, yeah, it's something we all feel, but let's be clear on it. Shame is different from guilt. You see, guilt is, I've done something wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. And I think sometimes we can try and make it look better, and we think, oh, yeah, yeah, I know I've done something wrong, but underneath it all, we're actually saying, I am wrong. And it's that that I want us to deal with, because like it or not, we live in a world of shame. So you only have to look at social media and how we interact in that. Either it's through Facebook and Instagram, which is how do you match up to perfection? You know, since we've gone from just the simple status comment of, hey, this is how my amazing life is going, we now have photos that capture how amazing our life is. As we're continuously bombarded by images of celebrities or social influencers or others that we're in relationship with who are always trying to show the best way of who they are. And so whenever we look at it, we're continuously saying, well, how do I match up to that? And I love sometimes just showing a different image. And so if you follow me on Instagram, you'll find every so often, I'll like show an image that totally isn't that. And so last year, I remember taking photos of my incredibly sunburnt feet. Why? To say, man, we're human. But anyway, we can find it in terms of social media. I'd say it's there in terms of the media, in terms of the radio, TV, news. Man, just look at the news of the last week. 
Start off with the week. There's the whole aspect of how the media is dealing with Meghan Markle. How there's a demonization of who she is and a continuation of shaming of different elements of who she is. You then look at Prince Harry. Now, this, I'm not a royalist. I'm not suddenly going, like, look at this couple. But Prince Harry, Monday, in Birmingham, opening an incredible ex- kind of, uh, not exhibition, an incredible memorial to those who were killed through a terrorist act. It's incredible. I'd encourage you to go and look at it in Cannell Park. But there on Monday, opening that, being with family members who lost people in this terrorist attack, loving them, caring for them, speaking on their behalf, on Tuesday is being slammed for taking a helicopter there. Because they want to say, hey, hey, he's not that good. And look who he is, shame him. And today, Esther Ransom, BBC News, saying, if I was to start my career today, I wouldn't make it because I'm not beautiful enough. And do you make the mark? We're living in a world of shame, of social media, of the media itself and how it portrays everything. But let's go a bit deeper and just say, I think it's to do with our stories. As I said, if we're brutally honest, every single one of us knows what it is like to live with shame of both what we've done or what people have done to us. Where if we were to say, man, if I truly let you in, what would you think of me? But you see, it's in to that world of shame that we're called to create a home. A home of no shame. And I think it's so important sometimes that we live with reality and then get to hear the call of what we're to be together. You see, God designed it at the beginning to be a home of no shame. And his desire is for us as we live as followers of Jesus together is to be a place of no shame. But how on earth do we get there? Well, to do that, I'd say let's start off then at the beginning in a place where there was no shame. Genesis 2 verse 25 says this. Should say two, it says Genesis 1. 2.25 says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's just, it's just dropped there at the very end of chapter 2. And the problem is we're rushing to chapter 3. We will get there, but we rush to chapter 3 and we kind of get this whole thing of the creation of man and woman. We're kind of perplexing over that. What does that really mean? And then at the very end is this dropped verse, which we can quickly skip through. And it just says this, Adam and his wife were both naked. And we're thinking, oh man, they were naked. They were naked. Na- Don't think about them being naked. Don't think about them naked. And then it says, no, that's not the point. And they felt no shame. And that word shame is boosh. I love it. I, only, I don't normally quote kind of Hebrew and stuff. It seems to be in a role at the moment that we do. But um, I like to just because I like the word boosh. And that word boosh means being or feeling worthless. Brené Brown didn't invent a description of what shame was. She's a follower of Jesus. She understood that God had already revealed what it was through revealing how it was going to be absent. Because at the beginning, there was a moment 
where there was no being or feeling of worthlessness. And that way of describing they felt no shame wasn't in that moment. It's actually a presence that was continuously there. That it was a way of being that Adam and Eve knew with God, with each other, with the whole of creation, they were continuously living with no shame. Now, it isn't described how long that lasted. As I said, we quickly jumped to chapter 3, but it is, we've got to understand the wonder and beauty of the home that God had created was one where they knew nothing of feeling worthless or being worthless. They only knew that they were worthy. Worthy towards each other, worthy towards God, worthy within the whole of creation. It was the only way they'd known. But the thing is, we know because of our experience, it didn't last. See, the reality is that there was no shame. But humanity decided that maybe they could live better than God had ordained. Maybe that they could say, hey, there is this worth that we've got from God, but maybe there's more. Maybe we could find our worth outside of who God is, outside of how God has created us, how God has ordained us to be, of the purpose that God has given us to be those who reveal him and honor him. So we find in Genesis 3, as we're going to look at in more detail next week, that humanity says maybe we could find our worth in ourselves. And the repercussions of that is suddenly shame is known. Probably the most painful verses to read in the whole of the Bible. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 10. Humanity who've lived in that deep worth of who God is, of knowing what it was to walk and be with God, to see God face to face. And suddenly in this moment, through the reaction of saying, hey, maybe our worth could come from outside of who God is, it breaks. But not only breaks, it causes them to know shame. How do we see it? Well, Genesis 3, 8 to 10, it says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Let's just pause there for a moment. The familiarity of that verse. They knew what it sounded like for God to walk in the garden with them. It wasn't like a surprise. It was like, whoa, what's that? No, no, they knew what it was like for God to be with them. But also, God knew what had happened. God knew what they'd done. God knew that they'd sought to find their worth in something outside of him. And it isn't that then God kind of comes in, oh, I wonder what's going on here. Where are they? You know, the one who is omnipresent suddenly can't see them. No, this is the God who comes to find us because he knows the reality that shame brings. And what we discover is what happens then. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God doesn't want to leave us in that place of shame. Always calls out. And the man answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid 
because I was naked, so I hid. Those who knew no shame, suddenly shame was all they knew. Suddenly that moment, it caused them to realize they were naked. And in that, you can suddenly think, because we're used to wearing clothes, we think, man, if I'd done this naked, you'd all be thinking, what on earth? Some of you, that's an uncomfortable image. Um, but what's being spoken of there is that what, how naked is used throughout the whole of the story of the Bible is this point of vulnerability. That suddenly they realized they were vulnerable. They realized that something was wrong. And they felt wrong. They knew they were flawed. They knew they were feeling worthless. And so in that moment of vulnerability, they did what you do with shame. Is you become afraid of what it will then mean if people discover who you truly are. And you hide. Adam and Eve aren't unique in how they respond to shame. To be honest, their response to shame is the response that every single one of us in this room has. See, shame brings a reaction, a shame reaction. Let's bring it a bit lighter for a moment. I suddenly thought, you know, it's the chain reaction, shame reaction. Some of you are thinking, nervous laughter, we can keep going. <laughs> um, shame reaction, I knew it'd help us. Another doctor, Dr. Hartling, in her book, Shame and Humiliation, From Isolation to Relational Transformation, says this. In order to deal with shame, some of us move away by withdrawing, hiding, silencing ourselves, and keeping secrets. It's what Adam and Eve did. It's what we do, isn't it? It's what I was doing in that R exhibition. I was kind of just starting to skulk away. Like, if I, if I go here, no one's going to notice I'm by the wall. I'll blend in. Shame does that. It isolates us. It says, actually, sometimes, no, I don't want everyone to know me. If I just keep it secret, then no one will truly know who I am. Some of us is to move towards by seeking to appease and please. We do everything we can. We call it a people pleaser. And I, I lived for years doing that, trying to be the best I could be for what I thought everyone else wanted me to be. Because if I was what I thought they wanted me to be, then it would be okay. They wouldn't know who I truly was and how I might get rejected from them. And some of us move against by trying to gain power over others, being aggressive and using shame to fight shame. Man, we're going to discover that Adam goes for that one. It wasn't me, it was her. And it was you, God, it was your fault. You did it, you, you put the tree there. That shame leads us to that point of, man, if I get the front foot on and bring shame then I'll be protected. I promise you every single one of us in this room, in our reaction and feeling of shame, have then reacted in one of these three ways. But surely there's a better way. Surely there's a better way of dealing with shame because if we're going to create a home where there is no shame, it can't be like this. Well, again, the answer isn't in ourselves. It's in the one who created home. See, God provides a way to remove shame. Shame is removed. And you see it in Genesis 3.21 where it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. 
That God doesn't leave them dwelling in how they feel, at the shame that they're knowing. He clothes them. They tried to clothe themselves, it says, with some leaves, and you kind of know how uncomfortable leaves are. And they're kind of doing that, and so God says, no, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to cover your shame. But here's the deal. Out of the beauty of what Glenn revealed last week, of humanity who are the caretakers of the whole planet, suddenly we find death for the first time. Something has to die to clothe them. God's grace comes at a cost. A cost not for humans, a cost in what God's created. I say he clothes them, but that clothing, as always, with the story of God revealed through the Bible, is always pointing to Jesus. It's always allowing us to understand how what was going on there was going to find its fulfillment in who Jesus is, in order that the whole story makes sense. As you discover the clothing that was given, the clothing that we now adapt, was only ever pointing to one who was going to come and clothe us in a way that these clothes would never be able to deal with. Because this may cover the knowing of our shame, but it doesn't cover the core of our shame. And we're told that Jesus comes and is crucified lives, dies, and rises again. Why? Well, part of it was to deal with our shame. So Hebrews 12, 2 says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Part of what went on as Jesus was crucified is he took on our shame. Being crucified was a shame-filled experience. It was the whole point of it. They tore off his clothes and divided them. He was naked on the cross, bearing shame. It was seen within Judaism as a cursed person was hung on a cross. It was a shameful thing. It was a painful act of going through humiliation continuously. And yes, that was present, but there was something deeper that was going on, as what was happening is that Jesus on the cross was taking your and my shame, things that we've done, things that have been done to us, onto himself to deal with it once and for all. And when it says scorning its shame, it's that he took it on, but it wasn't his identity. He identified with it, but it wasn't what he was then being seen as his identity. It's very different. Scorning is that he refused, he discounted, he discredited what that shame was doing to him. Man, what a wonderful savior. So he could come and transform us and say, hey, I not only give you a life filled with God's love, I not only offer you forgiveness for what you've done wrong, guilt. I also now deal and take off you the shame that you carry. See, we're invited to live free from shame. Live free from shame. Man, Sometimes we say stuff and you think, oh yeah, that's tragic. Live free from shame. Yes, yes, yes. No, drink it in for a minute. Live free from shame. And remember the world we're in? Jesus said, you're the, you're the light of the world, salt of the earth. And I wonder if some of what that looks like is a bunch of people who know what it is to live free from shame. 
Well, how do we do that? Well, I say two ways. First way is we have to make sure we're right, wearing the right robe. I've got two robes. I've got one that is my robe of shame. And I tell you what, all of us have got this robe, or had it, and we'll come on to why we still sometimes have it. But I say that robe of shame, and this isn't an extensive list. If your thing isn't on there, it isn't, therefore, oh no, maybe I'm discounted. Maybe it isn't. No, no, it's unique for each of us. This is just what I could come up with. I think we have shame in terms of our body image, our marital status, our academic achievement, fear, children, debt, age, that we're not coping with life, of sex, of weakness, of poverty, of privilege, of addiction, of employment, of abortion, of background, of abuse, of mental health, and where we live. I reckon there's something on that list that is about you, and I promise you there are many things on that list that are about me. And the danger is that we see that we have this cloak, this robe of shame. And what Jesus does is he comes and he gives us his robe. And boy, it's it a good robe. It's a robe where we're told we are completely loved. We're totally accepted. We're utterly delighted in. We're fully belonging. We're entirely known where there is no shame. And that's the reality. As soon as you become a follower of Jesus, you get the robe. But I think for some of us, though, we forget that we've still got an old robe on. And as, as we start to live in the good of this new robe, we suddenly realize, hey, I've still got this old robe. And sometimes we remember different parts of it. Sometimes it comes to us and we suddenly realize, hey, let's personalize it for me. We'll get more personal with me in a moment. But let's say it's just the academic achievement. I've told this story before. For me, my academic achievement mark of shame happens when I'm 12 years old and a good meaning teacher goes around my whole class and points to every single one of us and says, won't get a GCSE, 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 pauses at me, might get a GCSE, won't get a GCSE, won't get a GCSE. From that moment on, something went into me. Rightly or wrongly, it went into me, and I thought, I won't amount to much. It was coupled with other stuff that went on. I remember giving myself to sport, and this isn't something a self-help lesson for Adrian Hurst, it's just me saying, the way forward is we've all got this stuff. So for me, it was, I remember I used to give myself to sport, I went to every practice. And at the end of it, I never got chosen for teams. And what it showed me was, you're not good enough. Your efforts are never gonna be enough. And so those combining factors, by the age of 13, I decided, that's it. Don't try, and therefore you won't get disappointed. And so my academic achievements, and most of what I then went for, summed up in that statement. And that's what then I wore. But what I had to discover is that Jesus, though, says, no, Adrian, you're completely loved, totally accepted, utterly delighted in, fully belonging, entirely known. Therefore, take off that robe. So I did. I took it off. And I sought to wear daily this robe, even though I can't quite get this one on. And I used to <laughs> daily put this robe on, and I still do. 
I still put this robe on. But the thing is, you see, that robe, the old robe, I, I threw down. I said, God, Jesus, you've taken that. But the thing is, it's still there. I can still pick it up. And so let's go back and rewind a bit to the beginning of the talk. And I find myself in this art exhibition. I'm there, stood in front and across all of these different individuals who are so different to me. And I'm there thinking, <laughs> academic achievement, cultural background. And if you really knew me, you knew I don't belong. Here's the truth, you see. It was in 20 seconds that that thought pattern went. And I'd taken up this robe again and put it on and started to think, yeah, this is who I am. Shame. Don't belong here. Flawed. Worthless. And as I'm stood there talking to someone from the foreign office, shrinking back, thinking this is all I am. Something in me said, that's not who you are, Adrian. Because remember, it isn't just us. It's not Will Parrish. The, the, the God himself is dwelling within us by the Holy Spirit who's there saying, hey, you don't wear that robe. You wear this robe of Jesus. So then in that moment, as the 20 seconds are going, I'm thinking, this isn't who I am. Why am I bothering with that? Man, if I could, I'd have run out of Lambeth Palace and physically thrown it into the Thames saying, just be gone. So it gets to the end of the 20 seconds and there I am standing talking to this guy who's from the foreign office. And then he turns and he says, and who are you? There's a guy from the UN stood there. This guy from the foreign office. An MP there. And what do I say at that point? I don't say, oh, I'm completely loved, totally accepted, utterly delighted in, fully belonging, entirely known. Hallelujah! What I say is, that's within me, is I think, man, who I am is I'm someone of no shame, nothing to prove. So what do I say to him? Who are you, Adrian Hurst? I say this, I'm like a glorified cheerleader. That's who I am. I basically get to live a life where I find out other people and how amazing they are. And I get to run alongside them and say, you are fantastic. And what you've got adds to the wonder of what this world is. At this point, this foreign guy, the foreign office guy looks at me, his mouth slightly opens, and he goes, huh. To be honest, all I am is someone who connects people. Because you see, suddenly when you break the power of shame, and you are just vulnerable, it causes others to think, I can be vulnerable. That's very good. See, it isn't just about the robes that we wear, it's also about the home that we build. See, for us to build a home of no shame means that we need to give ourselves this stuff. Yes, personally, but I'd say two of the characteristics we've said we're going to give ourselves to, the attributes of the home that we're going to build are these, and they were on purpose. One is authenticity where we said, where we seek to know and be known without masks of pretense, understanding mess is okay as we're not building a museum. The reality is if we're going to build a home where there is no shame, we have to be vulnerable. Why do I tell stories about my own weakness? Because I want to set the bar of the vulnerability that we live with. 
I remember someone once talking to Lucy and I, and they said, hey, I'd love to get you and Adrian round, love to get to know a bit more about you. And Lucy just said, there is nothing else to know about Adrian. He says it all from the front. <laughs> That's the deal. I don't want to live pretending I'm something I'm not. And my encouragement is, let's build a home where we don't either. Let's not think that to belong here, we have to pretend that we're something we're not. Maybe it's that thing we've done. Maybe it's the thing that's been done to us. And we just get to have that moment of saying, hey, this is who I am. And I tell you what, when we are authentic with one another, what it does is it causes us to then say, hey, as you've been, I will be. But can I say that with authenticity, there needs to come this other thing, which is honoring. This is so important. Honoring where we seek to build up, not tear down. What's the greatest way we can build up is that we continuously point one another to the right robe to wear. Let's be those who continuously say, hey man, the answer here is Jesus. Yes, I understand, or I can see. We're never going to fully understand each other's shame, but I can see that what has happened to you has had an impact. But I promise you, just as I have found for me, I now encourage you to go to him. We build one another up. Can I also say that we bring dignity rather than shame? What breaks me, and it's funny, this preach is not funny at all, to be honest, it's been painful. This week, I've just lived in shame. Why? Because I thought, if I'm going to preach on this, I've got to live in it. And I lived in it not by doing things that were shameful, saying, oh, yeah, that's how it feels. No, I lived in it by remembering how shame had impacted my life, but also asking God to reveal how he sees how shame impacts our lives, and it breaks his heart. And the thing that breaks me more is sometimes the exact environment that was meant to be a place where shame would not be able to exist has become like a Petri dish that allows shame to only ever increase. And that's this place, the church. I'm not just saying Oasis, I think church general. I think we'd rather build, rather than building somewhere where people can know, hey, when I share this, I'm going to know the acceptance and belonging of Jesus. They've rather heard, no, you don't fit here, get out. Be shamed. Man, we need to not live like this. We need to ensure that we are ridding ourselves of bringing shame to others. And why do we do that? Well, it's because it actually just taps into the shame that we know. And if we judge them, maybe we won't be judged. Let's rid it. Which leaves us to this place. Because I'm going to take this off. Not that I'm not living in it. I'm just getting very hot. Um, <laughs> let's go to the last one. Home is a place of no shame. Man, how am I living with the shame, with shame at the moment? I, I don't know what it is for you. What about, I know what it is for me. And I've told you what it is for me. What is it for you? Are you allowing shame to be the robe that you wear? And today, will you allow Jesus to remove your robe of shame and receive afresh his robe? Like for some of us, we know we're going to do it, but we also know we're going to have to talk to some people afterwards. Because that's the beauty of how we do this together. is isn't to shame one another, is isn't to expose one another. It's in order that we still know, man, we can still belong. And then finally, how will you give yourself to helping build a home of no shame? And this takes all of us. 
It really does. And my hope is as we live freer of shame ourselves, it will cause us to live as a home together, revealing no shame, because we are in a world that desperately needs it. How we're going to land this is in a different way. I'm going to ask Andrew Gordon to come up. And Andrew was given not a lot of time, but um, I I kind of texted him and said, I'm sure you can do this, um, believing the best of him, is that I've just asked, would he perform a song for us? And in performing a song, it's a song that is all about God's desire for each and every one of us to bring us home to him, away from the shame that so easily can crowd us. And I wonder if we could use this song as a way of receiving from God what he longs to do for each and every one of us. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, why don't we just close our eyes, and as we have our eyes closed, just hear the words that are sung over you as God the Father and the Son and the Spirit sing them to the very core of your being. hiding you're safe here with me there's no need to cover what I already see you've got your reasons but I hold your peace you've been on lockdown and I saw it all, but I still chose the cross, and you were the one that I was thinking of when I rose from the grave. Now rid of the shackles, the victory's yours, and I tore the veil for you to come close. There's reason to stand, there's no reason to stand at a distance anymore. You're not far from home. I'll be your lighthouse when you're lost at sea. And I will illuminate No need to be frightened by intimacy. No, just throw off your fear and come running to me. Because I loved you before you knew I was love. And I saw it all, but I still chose the cross. And you are the one that I was thinking of when I rose from the grave. Now rid of the shackles, the victory's yours. And I tore the veil for your you to come close. There's no reason to stand at a 
distance anymore, you're not far from cross and you were the one that I was thinking of when I rose from the grave now rid of the shackles the victory is yours and I tore the veil for you to come close there's no reason to stand at a distance anymore you're not far from 